One of the most remarkable things about the universe is that it is expanding. By measuring how the universe is expanding, how fast it's expanding today, what the expansion rate was in the past, and how that expansion rate has evolved throughout our cosmic history, we can reconstruct a whole slew of interesting parameters and properties about the universe we inhabit. This is how we learned about how much matter we have, how old the universe is, what our ultimate fate is, and about the existence of dark energy. But despite all that we've learned, we are able to go now to greater and greater precisions than we've ever achieved before. And in doing so, we've only opened up more questions about what our universe is actually like. What are the limits of what we can say about that today? And where are we headed in the future? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. There are many different ways to try and measure the expanding universe, and depending on how we measure it, we're actually arriving at different answers. There's got to be something amiss there. This is one of the greatest puzzles facing cosmology, the study of the universe today. And to help us explore this, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Nobel laureate and professor at Johns Hopkins University and Space Telescope Science Institute, Adam Reese. Adam, welcome to our program. Thank you for inviting me to be on your program. Oh, I think it's so fascinating. And you've been someone who's been spending uh, basically their entire career investigating this problem of trying to understand how, not just, not just is the universe expanding, but how, what are the properties of the universe's expansion? Adam, why is this such an important problem for astrophysicists to face? You know, um, we want to understand what the universe is made of, and we want to understand uh, what its composition is, but most of the universe doesn't emit light that we see. And so we have to infer the presence of a lot of the universe by its gravity. And uh, one of the most powerful ways to do that is actually to see how that gravity is affecting the expansion of the universe, not just now, but over its whole history. In fact, it's really one of the only ways we know to understand the composition of the universe. And it's been a pretty fruitful uh, path to learning about the universe. If I, if I didn't know anything about observational work, if I, if I only had this picture in my head of a Big Bang, I might imagine that the universe is like a race, that on the one hand, we have this initial expansion rate where the fabric of space itself is expanding and trying to blow itself up, that it's trying to stretch in all directions. But on the other hand, I have the gravity of all the matter and all the energy present within the universe working to counteract that, working to pull things back together. So I I can imagine the universe as a race between this initial expansion and the gravitation of everything in it trying to fight each other. The Big Bang is the starting gun and you have these two competing um, mechanisms at play. If I didn't know anything, I would say, oh, well, I can imagine that maybe there's too much gravity. And what would happen if there was too much gravity is that the universe would expand, it would reach some maximum size, but gravitation would pull things back together, and I'd recollapse in a big crunch. Or I can imagine that it would go the other way, that gravity didn't win, that there wasn't enough stuff in the universe, and that things would expand and expand forever, and that there would never be enough gravitation to stop that expansion or turn things around. Or I could imagine what I call the Goldilocks case, that I'm right on the border between these two things, where it's it's not too much gravity and it's not too little gravity, it's just the right amount. And what would happen is things would expand and expand 
expand and gravitation would pull things back together and that expansion rate would asymptote to zero, but it would never quite turn around. It would never reach that maximum size. If I had maybe one more proton in the universe, it would, but I don't. And yet, when we actually look at the universe and say, hey, how have you been expanding over all of cosmic history? It turns out that it's not doing any of those things. What What is it doing instead? Yes, well, um, your scenario is really a good one and, and the one you would have sort of thought of if you just sat here on the Earth and, you know, watched an apple fall on your head as Newton did and uh, thought about gravity. And yet, the universe is... Much more interesting, uh, uh, it turns out, than we can imagine. So, uh, you know, if you threw a ball into the air as hard as you could, you might imagine that, you know, uh, that ball will fall back to the Earth or in your scenarios, uh, there wouldn't be enough gravity to hold it back and it would escape. But what we've seen instead is that the expansion of the universe is speeding up. It's like that ball has a rocket engine on it and it's taking off. And uh, it's very confusing uh, initially because it's not what you expected. It's not one of the the main ways. In fact, the only way we previously saw gravity operate, which is in the attractive mode. Uh, instead, it's sort of operating in what looks like a repulsive mode. Um, and, you know, Newton would have been utterly uh, perplexed about this because he didn't have this gear, this mode in his theory of gravity. But Einstein did. Um, Einstein, in his theory of gravity called general relativity, recognized potentially that uh, you could have attractive or a kind of repulsive gravity in space. And uh, that is the mode that appears to be dominant uh, right now. It, it uh, is explained by this uh, – stuff in the universe that we call dark energy it's it's basically the energy of empty space that has this kind of repulsive gravity and uh it seems like the expansion is getting faster all the time yeah and this is this is one of those fascinating and counterintuitive things that that i think is is part of why we do science right when you when you look out at the universe you expect things are going to go a certain way based on how you've always seen them go in the past and based on what your theories predict. Well, when we did this for the expanding universe and you were one of the pioneers of this type of science back in the 1990s, um, we were used to, oh, I can measure this particular property of a distant galaxy or I can measure this transient event that occurs somewhere in the universe or I can measure this specific type of star and I can measure both its redshift so I can learn, okay, Okay, how much is its light shifted by the expansion of the universe? And I can measure something that will indicate this object's distance from me. So if I can get a combined measurement of how much its light is redshifted and how far away it is from us, then I can use what we know about all the different measurements we've taken of the expanding universe, and I can say, oh, here's how I construct a redshift distance relation for this whole class of objects. And like you said, the most remarkable thing that we found is when we trace out how has the universe expanded over its cosmic history, we find that actually if you just filled it with matter and radiation and all the normal forms of stuff we know, you don't get an answer that jibes with our observations. Instead, you need to introduce something new. You need to introduce something that we've named dark energy to sort of explain why if we were to take a single galaxy and ask how does it evolve over the history of the universe, you would say, well, it's expanding initially at a certain speed from us. And that expansion rate, that inferred expansion speed will drop and drop and drop, and then it'll reach some minimum value, and then it will appear to speed up again. That's what we mean by the accelerated expansion of the universe, and it's only explicable by adding this additional energy component. In Einstein's theory, it's consistent with an energy inherent to empty space itself. In Newton's theory, you would have to say, actually, I'd have to imagine that the gravitational 
gravitational force law didn't obey this Coulomb potential, this one right. over R potential, I'd have to add in some fake extra thing like a harmonic oscillator potential to account for it. The name we've given to this is dark energy. And Adam, this is what you and Brian Schmidt and Saul Perlmutter, and maybe I should go further than that and say the Heise Supernova Search Team and the Supernova Cosmology Project uh, really won the Nobel Prize for. Right. That's right. And, um, you know, I, I should say we don't take this lightly in the sense that you know, we don't make a set of observations and say, well, that doesn't fit our standard theory. Let's make up uh, dark energy. Uh, there have been many different ways of measuring the universe very precisely over the last 15 to 20 years uh, by looking at different characteristics, different aspects that have almost nothing to do with each other except for requiring the universe to be consistent between them. And all of those have come up with this same conclusion that the universe looks like it's about 70% uh, in the form of dark energy. And so as weird as it sounds, uh, these dark components of the universe, both the dark energy that makes up about 70% of the universe, but also the dark matter that makes up about another 25%, those seem to be extremely robust because they show up in every sort of experiment we do. I think that's absolutely a fascinating and very vital point to this is that you originally discovered dark energy by looking at a specific type of transient event at a type right. 1a supernova, which we think is when a white dwarf either merges with another white dwarf or siphons enough matter off of a companion to go over a critical mass threshold. And when it goes over that threshold, the star undergoes a runaway nuclear fusion reaction and explodes in an explosion that we call a type 1a supernova right. and so you were able to observe these at a slew of different distances and say actually based on what we observe about the redshift distance relation we infer about these uh we need something else in the universe besides right. matter and besides radiation and that's how you came up with dark energy but even if you were today to throw away all of the supernova data and say, I don't know what's wrong with it, right. but I'm assuming something's wrong with it. Well, we have other distance indicators. We can look at the pattern of clustering and correlation in galaxies and how that evolves over cosmic time. That's something we call baryon acoustic oscillations. We can look at the large scale structure of the universe. We can look at the fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background and infer the total energy density of everything in the universe and the flatness of the universe. And when you put all of these different components together, even without supernova data at all, even That's though right. that's still arguably the best data we have in favor of it, we would still need a universe that had more than matter and radiation. We would still need a universe with some type of dark energy in it. That's right. Um, you know, uh, to use kind of a crude analogy, uh, you know, if you wanted to see a child grow, you might mark their height on a door frame, and, you know, every so often you'd make another mark. And the supernovae for us were sort of like the markings on the door frame, right? They record height and they record time. And so what we found was, wow, this this child, this this kid is going through some kind of growth spurt. My gosh, you know, they're growing like crazy. This was maybe even unexpected. But then if you doubted that, you'd have other ways. You might check their weight at various points in time. And also notice they are growing, you know, in weight tremendously. You might check their clothes size. You know, you'd have many, many ways to check this person and uh, verify, nope, it's not my scale that's wrong. Nope, it's not my markings on the doorframe. My meter stick isn't broken. Uh, you know, my, uh, you know, measurements of clothes isn't wrong. You know, we have many ways of doing this. And so that's why it's so fascinating is that these are very robust conclusions even though we don't always have a great understanding of the microphysics uh, that underpins dark energy or even dark matter. 
And that's, I think, a really important point, is when we look out in the distant universe and we see the record of all of the children's baby teeth falling out, and we see like, oh, here's where the molars fell out, and here's where the premolars, and here's where the front teeth fell out, uh, we might not know all of the details because we might not have an actual picture of how big the child was, but we can use our detective skills to infer all of this about the expanding universe. One of the things that's come out really recently about this and and maybe maybe not that recent is when when this initial supernova work was done in the late 1990s one of the big things you were measuring was how the expansion rate had changed over time That's right. but what wasn't such a great measurement at that time was the absolute expansion rate what the what That's the correct. actual right. um, like how what's the anchor point for this how fast is the universe expanding overall right. we thought in 2001 that finally at last we'd nailed it down cuz there was a controversy for maybe two decades before that over the expansion rate of the universe would you would you like to tell us a little bit about that sure absolutely um you know if, if i can uh, uh labor this uh analogy a little bit more um, you know, we had we had checked the height of this kid over the last, you know, uh, you know, 40 or 50 percent of their life and had seen, wow, they're going through a gross spurt. But we had said very little or had not attempted to compare to what, let's say, we expected their height to be starting from when they were first born. You know, when a when a kid is first born, you might bring them to the doctor and the doctor might make a prediction based on many factors, the height of the parents, you know, how the kid starts out about, you know, how tall they're going to be at, but, you know, when they're a full adult. And so we had only measured the this last growth spurt. But um, what's really interesting is over the last few years, we've gotten really excellent data about the, um, you know, the, the birth of this child in the form of looking at the radiation left over from the Big Bang. And using that, there was a very powerful uh, prediction then of how tall this child would be, how, how fast our universe would be expanding now. And uh, as you said in the beginning, there had been a lot of controversy, a lot of uncertainty about what that current expansion rate actually is. But over the last five or six years, we've really refined that measurement a lot. Um, you know, back in 2001, it had been measured to only about 10% precision. But just in the last few years, we've really been able to improve that quite a bit using the Hubble Space Telescope and other facilities to now just under 2%. And what's really interesting right now is we're not seeing a very good agreement between that, that prediction. The, uh, you know, the child has grown to be an adult and is, you know, quite a bit taller, actually, by about 9% than the expectation. And the, that difference is quite significant. And it actually might be telling us that we're still missing something in the description of the universe. No, and and this is such a big deal. A lot of people, in, including me, have called this the biggest controversy about the expanding universe today. Is you know, in in particular, if you wanted to get into the specifics, the way the expansion rate works as we understand it today is that it's like the universe is expanding at a speed per unit distance. So if we see something that's you know one of the distances we like to use is we call it megaparsecs which means it's about it's about 3 3.26 million light years is 1 megaparsec. So if you see a galaxy that's, you know, 1 megaparsec away and your expansion rate is 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec, you might expect that the average galaxy that's a megaparsec away will expand at 70 kilometers a second. We'll move away from you at 70. And if it's 100 megaparsecs away, you'd expect it to move away at 7,000 kilometers a second. Well, what's fascinating is the rate of expansion of that of the universe, what we call the Hubble constant, or that rate, which, you know, is around 70 kilometers a second per megaparsec, it seems to actually depend, like you were saying, 
on how you measure it. If you take a look at the leftover glow from the Big Bang at the cosmic microwave background and you look at the fluctuations in there, um, it starts to indicate a whole slew of information about the universe. It tells you, okay, here are the patterns of fluctuations we see, and we see them on all these different scales. So what can that tell us about the nature of the fluctuations the universe was born with. These are the quantum fluctuations that were generated during inflation that gave rise to the large-scale structure we see, and we get a we get a parameter that describes those fluctuations called the scalar spectral index. You can measure based on the patterns of wiggles that you see on different scales. You can say, okay, here's how much normal matter must have been in the universe, and here's how right. much dark matter must have been in the universe, and here's how much other forms of energy that isn't matter and how much radiation must have been there. And you get all these numbers. And like you said, this is basically like looking at a baby and having a roadmap for right. how is this baby going to grow up over the right. course of its life. That's right. And you get an answer there that's different, like you said, about 9% smaller than what the baby actually looks like when you right. start looking at all the different snapshots of it. Right. That's right. And, um, you know, you called it, uh, you know, fairly you called it a, a one of the most or uh, biggest controversies. Um, I, I would sort of take a glasses half full perspective, say maybe one of the biggest clues or one of the biggest opportunities, <laughs> because uh, I hope by this by this seeing this difference, it actually will teach us something. Uh, maybe that we didn't know about the universe. Um, you know, you you described all this great information we get uh, when the universe is first born. And, you know, just to to beat this dead horse a little more, you know, it's almost like we could read the DNA of, of the kid right at the beginning and go, gosh, you know, we can read their DNA. We see how tall their parents are. We should be able to make this prediction of how tall they'll be. And so it's pretty shocking to us, I would say, to see such a difference. On the other hand, you know, I would say maybe it shouldn't be so shocking. I mean, after all, uh, we, in order to make this prediction, we actually have to understand and and describe uh, what dark energy is like, what dark matter is like, what the geometry of space is like, what the what the uh, composition of uh, relativistic particles are in the universe. And the truth is, we recognize we've taken some pretty naive guesses about those things. Um, you know, take dark matter. We say uh, dark matter is a a uh, perfectly cold, perfectly collisionless, perfectly stable particle that only interacts by gravity. Well, what if one of those things is not true? Does that change our prediction of how the universe unfolds? Or same thing with dark energy. We say, well, let's say it's the static uh, energy of empty space. Well, what if it isn't? What if it's more like a field, the kind of field that gave rise to inflation? Or what if there's another neutrino besides the three we know from nuclear reactors, or what if the the geometry of space is close to flat, but not exactly flat? If any of those things changes, then our sort of extrapolation from the birth of the universe to the present time can change as well. And so that's why I say maybe it's a clue or opportunity in, instead of just a controversy, uh, because it might be teaching us one of those things. And uh, so I think uh, that, you know, we're desperate for those kinds of clues. 95% of the universe is in a dark form that we don't understand well. So this is sort of why we make these very precise measurements, hoping that we see something sticking out. And I think that's exactly right. You know, I, I think I sort of maybe revealed some of my own bias by saying controversy, because because if I say controversy, that's me looking back at the yeah. previous yeah. discrepancies that different teams have had over what is the Hubble constant, how fast is the universe is expanding. And, you know, if you go back to Hubble's original estimate, you'll find right. that actually, based on Hubble's original estimate, he had something that was off by almost a factor of 10. That's right. From the original, right. you know, from our current estimate. And it turned out, well, actually, part of the reason for that is he made a tremendous mistake right. that wasn't corrected until, you know, some 20 years later when Walter Bade came along and said, hey, you are using this type of star as your distance measurement, as your distance That's indicator. Right. And now, guess what? You made an assumption about it that wasn't any good. That's right. But, you know, um, I, I guess I would I would discriminate between two kinds of challenges in measuring the Hubble constant. Um, sometimes in the past, 
two different researchers or teams of researchers uh, were trying to measure the, the expansion rate of the universe today, the Hubble constant, using more or less the same techniques and getting different answers. And that sort of tells you somebody's doing something wrong or there's a problem in the measurement. That's a that's a controversy. But, you know, in the present example, we're really approaching this at two different ends of the history of the universe. And if they disagree, we don't know that they should have agreed. We think, you know, there's the potential here that we're actually learning something about the universe. Uh, you know, even in the case where Hubble measured a, a very high value for the Hubble constant, which implied that the universe would have only been about a billion years old, which, you know, we knew even at that time the Earth was much older than that. What we learned was something really interesting, something really interesting about the fact that there had been multiple generations of stars and, you know, Hubble was confusing one with the other, uh, you know, back in the 1990s, even when it looked like the Hubble constant was still um, too high and would have implied that the universe was only maybe 10 billion years old, which, you know, is still younger than some of the stars in the universe. We recognize that some assumptions in those calculations were wrong. People were assuming that there was much more matter in the universe uh, and none of this dark energy than what turns out to be the case. So, you know, when when the Hubble constant ends up different than our, I would say, our expectations, we've almost always learned something really interesting about the universe. When it just disagrees between two people trying to measure the same thing, well, you know, that's when we, we think it's more likely a mistake. And I think that's why maybe conundrum is a better word than controversy, because yeah. we we are at a time right now where all of our observations that we make from, you know, if you look at the leftover glow in the Big Bang and how we see it today, all of that light has to travel through the expanding universe that's been expanding for 13.8 billion years before it arrives at our eyes. When we look at how these different galaxies are clustered together, we are looking at how they cluster and correlate together on all sorts of distance scales at all sorts of distances from us. Both of those measurements give us that consistent but low value of right. around 67 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Now, the work that you've been doing for a very long time, the distance ladder work, where you say, okay, we're going to look at these objects and we're going to say, how far away is this object? What's its redshift? And we're going to reconstruct the expanding universe from that. Um, all incredibly self-consistent between many, many different methods and many, many different types of distance indicator. That's and right. you consistently get a higher value that's around 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And I'm not putting this onus all on you. It's you and everyone who works oh. on that yeah. is getting that same value. Right. So we think that all of the groups are both precise and accurate. If that's the case, that could be teaching us something about the nature of the universe that's different from what we've been expecting, not something that's just possibly a flaw in one of these measurement techniques. Right. Well, that's certainly the most interesting possibility. Um, there, as you described, uh, there are a number of measurements which give the, quote, low value. And what they all have in common is they all start from assumptions or calibrations in the early universe. So even this pattern of what you described, baryon acoustic oscillations, receives its calibration from the cosmic microwave background, where if we try to calculate what the density of baryons in the universe is uh, and use that to calibrate baryon acoustic oscillations, that also starts or is rooted in uh, how we describe the early universe physics, whereas methods that start at this end, the, the present end of cosmic history, whether it's building a distance ladder through links, uh, as we've done with uh, exploding stars, supernovae, and pulsating stars, and geometric techniques, or one-shot measurements, uh, people who measure time delays uh, with quasars, uh, what we call the strong lensing technique, um, all of these ways that uh, start rooted in the present universe get the high value. And so unless there's some kind of conspiracy going on, uh, you know, it, it seems like the important distinction is which end of the 
the span you start at. And that's where we get excited or interested in, gee, is it something that's connecting the span? And what connects the span is our theoretical understanding of the universe. And so, you know, there are many ways in which that could be off that, you know, I think we wouldn't be shocked if it was off. And, uh, you know, that's what could potentially be going on if, you know, we continue to see measurements like we've been seeing. And I think that's eminently fair. This is why it's important to have independent checks. Yes. But any independent check that we think of is by necessity going to be anchored either in the very early stages of the universe or close by. For example, right. we have this new mechanism where we can test the expansion rate of the universe called the standard siren model, where that's you're right. actually listening to the gravitational waves of an in-spiral of two neutrons stars that will eventually right. go kilonova. Well, right. we've seen one of those, and we can actually get an estimate for the Hubble constant from it. Uh, the error bars are too large on it. The uncertainties right. are too large on it to construct anything meaningful. But the first results say, hey, it's about 70, plus or minus maybe 15%. But that's fantastic. It tells us we're in the right ballpark. We know that that is something that we're going to use just like we use a distance ladder method, where we're really looking in the relatively nearby universe, and we're going to build up things that go farther and farther out. We may find, hey, new independent measurement, we know it's going to agree with one of these or neither of these results. Whatever it is, it's going to be interesting. But it's not going to tell us necessarily what's the resolution to this conundrum. Because sure, there's the, there's the sort of mundane option that someone either the early universe team or the late universe team is making some kind of error that they haven't yet identified. And that seems less and less likely as time That's goes right. on and things get more consistent and error bars get smaller and smaller. Another thing that could be happening is there could be some fundamental assumption that we're making about the universe that isn't quite correct. And right. something else that's even more interesting is maybe something that we think is fundamental about the universe is actually changing over time, like you mentioned about dark energy being a field or being dynamical in some right. way. That's right. Um, and so, you know, I think what's really exciting is, and this is the development of, I would say, just the last maybe two years or so, where we have seen duplication of the measurements or the ability to essentially remove any one set of measurements and replace them with an independent set and yet find this same, you know, tension or difference between these. And so it's getting to the point where, as you say, it's looking pretty robust. And, um, uh, you know, that doesn't mean we don't want to continue to try to uh, make more independent measurements. So this technique of, of standard sirens, as you described, the sort of uh, how powerful the gravitational waves are that we receive will allow us to reproduce the the nearby measurements. Um, I know that there are new uh, observations of cosmic microwave background uh, from the, the Simons Observatory or the next stage, what's called CMB stage four, um, that should uh, be able to measure uh, additional modes, both polarization and frequency scale, so that uh, we can either further test that end of the puzzle or even look for some of the signatures of the theories or models that have been proposed as a solution to this problem. And so I think it's, you know, it's a very exciting and interesting moment. And, uh, you know, I think people would do well to sort of stay tuned to this story. Yeah, and this is this is really fascinating because we we have this I think misconception among ourselves that the way science works is okay, I have some competing ideas and I'm going to make some critical observation and it's going to discern between who's right and who's wrong. And this looks like it could be a case where nobody's wrong. This looks like it could be a case where hey, it looks like across the board if you do your science response 
responsibly and you make your measurements responsibly, you're going to get this low value measurement for the Hubble constant if you start it, if you start your observations anchored in the early universe, anchored close to the Big Bang. And it looks like you're going to get things if you just use the distance ladder that says actually the expansion rate is this higher value. And it doesn't look like it's dependent on how you make that measurement. If you take out Cepheid variable stars and say, hmm, maybe something's wrong with these Cepheid variables, let me not use them, and you use RR Lyris stars instead, or you use uh, giant stars that are going through the final stages of stellar evolution when they reach a certain point at the tip of their giant branch, um, you can say, actually, we can use this technique instead. And guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the results. You can throw the supernova data away, and you can use information about the galaxy itself, such as how it rotates, or what's right. its velocity dispersion, or how does its surface brightness fluctuate. And same thing, the farther away you go, you start to see not only the evidence for dark energy, but the evidence that the expansion rate is this higher value than you would have got from these early relic methods. So you talked about some of the ways that we might be able to better pin down the cosmic microwave background type of method. And with surveys like WFIRST coming up, um, we may be able, or the LSST, we may be able to do baryon acoustic oscillations and what we call the inverse distance ladder method to a superior right. um, precision. What are some of the ways that we're looking at improving the precision and possibly even improving the accuracy of the distance ladder method? Right. Well, you know, the hardest part of the distance ladder used to be the start, the the what we call the geometric calibration. I mean, at some point, if you're going to calibrate the the luminosity of a star, you have to be able to measure its distance. And you want to do that in a way that doesn't make any assumptions that is, you know, really just purely geometry. And uh, that, as I said, used to be the hard part, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, we had pretty crude and, and not very secure ways of doing that. And there's been a dramatic change in that over the last few years, particularly in measuring parallax observations. Um, we've been using the Hubble Space Telescope and developed a new technique to spatially scan or, or move the telescope during observations that uh, dramatically improves the signal to noise and allows us to see the the back and forth motion, the parallax of distant objects. The European Space Agency uh, has been flying a mission called Gaia, which is dramatically improving on parallax measurements. Um, there are new techniques of looking at the timing of stars orbiting other stars in the Large Magellanic Cloud uh, called eclipsing binaries, which have uh, just resulted in a 1% measurement to the, the LMC. And, you know, there are um, water masers orbiting the supermassive black hole in the center of a galaxy, NGC 4258, uh, whose distance has been measured by just the simple dynamics of an orbit to about 2.5% uh, precision. And so there are many different ways that have almost nothing to do with each other that are all improving, and as I said, all of these are uh, giving us the same answer, and so it's both improving our precision and our accuracy. Um, I, I expect particularly with the parallax measurements, uh, Gaia is due to improve their results over the next four or five years uh, at a level that should guess uh, a calibration of the distance ladder that's good to about half of 1%, which will be really tremendous. Um, towards our, you know, long-defined goal of making a 1% measurement of the expansion rate of the universe. 1% also happens to be the precision with which the expansion rate is predicted by the cosmic microwave background and the cosmological model. So at that point, we will have kind of maxed out this test or this probe of uh, what's going on in the universe. And it's our hope by doing that, not just that uh, if there's a discrepancy, we could see it, but that if there is this discrepancy holding, that we can diagnose it because different ideas of what could be causing it predict a different size discrepancy. Uh, I said earlier that the difference between uh, the prediction and the observation is about 9%. I would say plus or minus 2.5%. Some ideas of what could be causing this will say, well, you should see kind of an 8 to 10% difference. 
Others say maybe only a three or 4% difference. The better our measurement is, the better we can winnow those, those different possibilities and hopefully uh, give theorists a, a, a better clue as to what might be going on. And that's and that's really fascinating because we are, I think, the general consensus in the field, which is, you know, which is always good to have, it seems to be that both of these methods right now, the distance ladder method and the, I guess I'll call it the early relic method, yes. um, they both appear to be at the point where it's looking like their error bars aren't going to overlap. It looks like you can't really push the results from the CMB up to some value in the middle of 67 and 73. If you start going up too far, the only way to get the patterns of fluctuations we we have is to push the matter density to an unacceptable level, to an unacceptably right. low level, that we just see more gravity from the stuff in the universe than that indicates, that it would push the spectral index to a tilt that's inconsistent with what we've seen based on the structure that winds up forming in the universe. So it seems like that's really hard. At the same time, it looks like the errors on the distance ladder method are too small that it would be reasonable to push that value down to like 70 or 60. 69 or 68 anymore right. that we're we're fast approaching this point where the tension is too great to ignore right. one of right. the things but i wanted to ask you is are there are there any things that you or or people you respect in the field are legitimately worried about actually maybe someone is making a mistake are there are right. there those questions that keep you up at night right well you know you're you're not a good uh, observer or experimentalist if you don't stay up at night worrying about such things and that you don't always carry a kind of a list in your mind of, you know, things to worry about and additional experiments to do. Um, you know, we generally talk about two kinds of errors, what we call statistical errors and systematic errors. The statistical errors are sort of factoring in everything you know uh, in your measurement. And as you said, the discrepancy is now so large, so many times larger than our statistical error that unless we're incredibly unlucky at this point like one in a hundred thousand unlucky then you know something is going on and then you worry about systematic errors the kinds of things that you know are not in your experiment that you didn't know about that maybe even nobody knows about and you know it, it's hard when you're doing an experiment you don't want to you don't want to become so pessimistic that every time you see something that doesn't match you say must be a systematic error otherwise you know why do experiments why do science you know if you're going to say I'm either going to see exactly what I expect or if I see anything other than that, I'll assume it's an error, right? So you have to do some critical thinking and you have to do some, you know, real investigation of other possibilities. But, you know, there's nothing quite like having, uh, you know, as I said, completely independent routes to get somewhere. So, for example, if something were going weird with supernovae, let's say that, you know, uh, you know, in some weird way, the I don't know, the supernovae that we observe nearby are just fundamentally different than the supernovae we observe just a little further away. Um, you know, that might be hard to discover um, on its own. But then, you know, as I as I described, this other technique of measuring uh, the the time delays in multiple images of quasars and measuring the distance uh, and the expansion rate of the universe that way doesn't even involve supernovae. And so, you know, the fact that those people get, you know, I think their latest results are 72.8 plus or minus uh, 2.4. You know, that's very consistent with what we get. And yet it doesn't involve any of the the techniques or tools that I'm using in my measurement. That's where I start to go, well, you know, even if it, even if there was something we were missing in our experiment, it, it couldn't be something they're missing too, because our experiments don't have any commonality. And so that's, that's what gets really interesting. And that's why, you know, we would still like to see other experiments, you know, the standard sirens or, or other things that, uh, you know, make no assumptions in common with multiple experiments. Um, so, you know, we don't ever wake up one day and say yesterday uh, this was uncertain and today it's certain. You know, it, it's a process of 
confidence grows as you continue to make measurements or do experiments that are confirming this this result you know confidence would would uh, go away if we saw the alternative and so you know i what i could say is over the last oh 15 20 years the local measurements have been very consistent of finding this value for the Hubble constant in the low 70s. The only real change has been that the uncertainties have really come down. We haven't seen a a sort of a jump or change or, you know, kind of large systematic error pop up in the last 20 years of the size that would uh, span this gap. And so, you know, that's why at this stage our confidence has been growing. That And that makes a whole ton of sense, because if you're any sort of detective, you want to gather as much independent evidence as possible where you say, okay, we can prove it in way A, and we can prove it in way B, and we can prove it in way C. And when you have all the different lines of evidence where you're like, but we have the fingerprints, and we have the blood, and we have the DNA, and we have the dead body, and we have the note, and we have the witnesses, and we have, you know, it it gets really hard to argue against. At the same time, though, the cosmic microwave background and baryon acoustic oscillation teams, they have a very similar story, where if you looked at the two-degree field galaxy redshift survey data and you looked at the WMAP data, you said, well, okay, we're around 70, and we could be 66, 67, but we could be in the like 71, 72 range, because there's this range of parameters that are uncertain. And with the advent of all the great work that the Sloan Digital Sky Survey has done, and when we look at what Planck has brought us, including with the polarization data, they have the same story that the distance ladder team does, except reaching a different conclusion. That's right. And then, you know, at some point you go in the sort of third direction uh, after, you know, giving the 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 hard uh, tests and, uh, you know, grilling of these experiments. At some point you go in the third direction. You say to theorists, so how hard is this? How hard would it be? How surprised? How weird would it be? Uh, what story can you tell us about Uh, an assumption that was wrong and that can make these things match. And then, you know, there's some period of time where you have to let theorists go off and be creative for a while. You know, a few years ago, I was going to conferences and the theorists were saying, oh, no, this is too hard. Anything you do is going to mess up something. And then just in the last year or so, they've started saying, no, actually, we can do that. You know, there's been a number of papers, uh, you know, an episode of of dark energy that that, – occurred just before the universe became transparent, before recombination, before the cosmic microwave background got out. You know, we can do it with that or, or you know, we might be able to do it with a, a kind of a neutrino that would have certain properties or, you know, they start telling you things or writing papers saying, yeah, we can do that. It wouldn't mess up anything. And, you know, it's this combination of, you know, grilling the experiments, looking at the possibilities. And, uh, you know, as I said, there's no one day where we wake up and say, and now it was discovered, uh, you know, but, you know, this is, as as you said, I think this is one of the biggest uh, tensions or, or one of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, you know, thumbs sticking out that uh, we're, we're struggling to understand. And I think that's that's really fascinating because one of the things that um, I love to look at is when you look across fields and when you look to different disciplines and you say, hey, what are what are some of the observations that you have in your other field that you can't explain that might be related? And I can't help but think about, you know, hey, like we have results from LSND. Uh, which is a neutrino experiment, and we have results from mini-boon, and we have results from reactor neutrino experiments, where we say, hmm. They've been hints of, you know, maybe another neutrino or something, uh, maybe even a sterile neutrino that, you know, has only, you know, gravitational interactions. And, you know, that is also how you end up solving these kinds of problems is, you know, from some other field, from left field, somebody comes along and says, hey, we see this thing. And you suddenly realize, hey, there's one story that puts all of this together. And so, you know, it is still, you know, we're still in the midst or maybe even early days of that process. 
Um, but, you know, that's why it's fun to sort of look at the frontier of what's going on in science. I mean, that's got to be the most fun place to be is right on that cutting edge. And, you know, I I am so excited about all the different teams and different people working on all of this. Um, you mentioned standard sirens and you mentioned uh, time delays of signals due to gravitational lensing. Are there any dream observations that you think we may someday be able to get that could perhaps either connect the early stages to the latter stages of the universe or right. could give us a way to uh, to measure something that we haven't measured before to provide some new type of window into this problem? Right. Well, I'm glad you used the word dream uh, in front of observation, dream observation. So that oh, that gives me license to tell you about the things I'd like to measure that I don't know how to measure right now. But yes, um, you know, one of the most famous and, and most direct tests of these ideas uh, is a test called the redshift drift test, which is, you know, definitely always been on my my wish list, which is, you know, as you described, we observe the redshift of a galaxy. Um, but if we had enough precision that we could and enough patience that we could wait, oh, I don't know, uh, 10 years, uh, 20 years, and then measure its redshift again, if the universe is expanding and even uh, accelerating as we see, then the redshifts of individual galaxies will change over time. And that's that can be a very direct probe of the expansion history of the universe. The problem is precision, that it, you know, the, the changes in the redshifts would be so tiny. You have to measure it for, you know, millions, or billions of galaxies, maybe measuring millions of lines per galaxy, if you could even find that many lines. But, you know, if you could combine all this information in kind of a big data way, you might be able to get at that signal. Uh, you know, I have yet to see a paper that gives a, a really plausible way to do this uh, in the time while I'm alive. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, maybe there'll be some progress and uh, somebody will figure out a way to do that. Yeah, what do you think about maybe using uh, one of the Great Walls, like the Sloan Great Wall or the CFA sure. Great Wall, and saying, "Hey, you know, we have a huge number of galaxies here. Uh, I know that I know that statistical errors go as the square root of the number of galaxies you measure." Right. Would there be a way to make those measurements, wait a decade, make those measurements right. again? The problem is you'd have to go, you know, some, you know, however long you want to wait relative to the expansion history of the universe, which is, you know, 10 to the 10 billion years, um, you have to go to that many significant digits. So if you're going to wait a decade, you need nine significant figures on your measurement of precision to make That's that right. measurement. That's right. And actually, there's another kind of uh, trick or, or thing that makes this difficult, too, which is even if tomorrow you came up with the world's greatest spectrograph that could, you know, make these kinds of measurements, you know, if, if you wanted to make that measurement now, you'd have to compare it to measurements that have been made 10 or 20 years ago when you didn't have the world's greatest spectrograph. And you're going to be limited by, you know, the poorer of the two measurements. And so, um, you know, the, sometimes I've looked at, uh, oh, gee, can we see, uh, you know, how any changes have occurred in this or that star over 100 years? Well, you're going to have to go back to the, you know, the, the old photographic plates that were not very precise from, you know, the turn of the previous century. You're limited by the older technology. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to solve that problem because it requires both great technology and great patience. Yeah, I mean, you can go all the way back to, I think, 1911 or 17 and Vesto Slifer's observations, Correct. but uh, his but error bars are literally like a bar graph on a printed paper. Right, if he even, if he even provided error bars, so yes. Yeah. Um, so this is this is really, really fascinating stuff. We've talked about the distance ladder. We've talked about the early relic method, and we've talked about the measurement tension there. You might have seen an evolution in how people are thinking about this. I think I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you were probably getting a lot of people who were saying things like, oh, there's probably one of those Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns that are yes. causing this discrepancy. Yeah. And I've seen in the scientific community, um, even over the last maybe five years, 
that opinion has gotten more and more marginal and more people are starting to seriously consider the possibility that there's a real tension here at play that may even have some physical underlying cause that's extremely meaningful for our universe. That's right. Um, you know, as I said, the, the unknown unknown should definitely keep you up at night, but they shouldn't stop you from ever taking seriously an experiment or measurement. Otherwise, you know, why even bother trying to learn anything if, if you'll always doubt anything that doesn't seem exactly what you expected? So, you know, there's a balance there and, you know, there's a process and it also requires lots of corroboration. And so, you know, all we can do is sort of at any point in time tell you what, what the status, what the progress of that is right now. And so hopefully the people listening to this podcast have some idea of where we are at this point. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating, too, that if we look ahead even to the next, uh, you know, at the 2020s, at what the next decade is going to hold, I think it's extraordinarily reasonable that we're going to be looking at 1% or even sub 1% um, precision on each of these techniques. As we get right. LSST and W first up, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if baryon acoustic oscillations didn't surpass the cosmic microwave background. As right. we get to smaller and smaller angular scales where, you know, experiments like like the latest bicep or polar bear or spider or act pole or choose your experiment combination gets to those smaller angular scales and better polarization, we may even improve on the Planck data. And similarly, with distance ladder methods, you've talked about a number of things that are in progress right now, like the Gaia mission, that right. are working to get those uncertainties in the distance ladder down to at that sub 1% level. This is where I think we could really make a huge advance in terms of seeing not just what are the different measurements for dark energy and what are the different measurements for the Hubble expansion rate, but can we get a window in maybe some intermediate place where we're saying right. what's what was going on with the universe when it was 1 billion years old or 3 billion years old or 300 million years old and how is it expanding then? That's right. Um, you know, people are looking really hard at the kinds of measurements they can make at other points in the history of the universe. People start to look at quasars, even though they're not, you know, obviously great standard candles, but are there ways you can standardize them so that you can get measurements at redshifts three, four, five, six, where we have virtually nothing else we can observe in the universe? Um, you know, also, it's been my experience, you can describe all the steps of measurements and facilities that you see coming uh, in the next few years, but there are always additional ones that you you missed or were not on your radar screen or, you know, somebody's quietly working on uh, on in some corner of, of research land and then they suddenly appear with, you know, some some great additional information. In fact, I find about half of the, the relevant information comes from unexpected directions. So, um, you know, I look forward to that as well. We, we will make in, in some ways we will make more progress in areas we didn't expect, maybe less in some others. But, you know, on net, I have no doubt that this will, will be a much enriched uh, study uh, just in the next five to 10 years. And that's and that's really what we're all in it for. I think when you when you have a puzzle, um, you know, you you know, p part of the problem is you you are always going to have people saying like, ah, what if there is no puzzle? What if there's someone wrong? And I think that's an important voice, like you said, to keep yeah. in the back of your head, because that spurs you to always attempt to be disproving yourself, always to try and push to an extra level of precision for your data to make sure that there aren't errors that you haven't made assumptions about that you may be overlooking. But beyond that, yeah, the way forward is with more data, better data, and, you know, opening up your assumptions to saying, well, what if this assumption isn't right? What if dark energy isn't static? What if dark energy right. turned on at some point? What if it's strengthened or weakened and then strengthened? What if what if the universe is more complicated than we give it credit for? That could be in the dark matter sector, that could be in the dark energy sector, that could be in the neutrino sector, or that could be in some law of physics that we haven't challenged yet that maybe needs to be challenged. 
That's right. And, you know, what's also can be quite powerful, even these puzzles like we have, they give you a scale and a target to shoot at so that if you are coming along with another experiment and you're going to figure out how to do that experiment, you know, how well do you need to measure whatever it is you're measuring, then you can use these, for example, this tension or this discrepancy to set a benchmark for how well you need to be able to measure. If, you know, if you could uh, only measure, oh, I don't know, the the Hubble constant to, I don't know, 15 or 20 percent. Well, that won't be good enough to weigh in on this problem. So on the other hand, if you know uh, a way you can do it to two or three percent, that will be uh, very useful. You don't have to necessarily go to 0.1 percent uh, to inform us on this. So, you know, sometimes just even having um a particular, you know, puzzle or, you know, two competing values or ideas allows you to define the experiments you need to do to be able to resolve the difference. I know that there are other investigations where we've sometimes struggled with no alternative to know how well to make a measurement. And, you know, if you don't know how well to make a measurement, sometimes you can't even start. You don't even know how to design the experiment. So, you know, this, this, you know, it, just even having this discrepancy itself can be kind of a catalyst for progress. Adam, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your expertise, and a fascinating window into, I would say, one of the biggest conundrums facing astronomers and astrophysicists today. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, you know, only just to uh, remind them that science is a kind of a changing and evolving field. We learn new things along the way. We learn things, and you know, a lot of what we learn does stay as part of our knowledge, but some of it changes as well. You know, it's very important, I think, for people to sort of stay tuned and be aware that science is this kind of living, breathing investigation that we all sort of participate in, either you know, by doing it, by listening, by watching, by learning. All right. Well, thank you so much. I am really glad we had you join us today. Uh, Everyone, that was Nobel Laureate and Professor Adam Reese of Johns Hopkins and Space Telescope Science Institute, expert on dark energy and the cosmic distance ladder. Thank you for being our guest on the Starts With a Bang podcast, and thank you for all our supporters on the Starts With a Bang Patreon who make this podcast possible. I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 and above level per month. So thanks go to Robert Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Stefan Berniger, Matt Rumel, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Chris Shaw, Thomas Sola, Denier, Frank, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Jeffrey Maracini, John Duffield, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Paulina Barron, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Laird WH, Daniel Nadasi, Eric Brown, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Elver Saint Sosa, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafael Wojcik, Danny, Alexander Marius, Andrew Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Jason Luttrell, Charles Buchanan, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Frederick Martello, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills, Joseph Dvorak, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, David Krimpotic, Randall Slemak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Ahmed Lee Comsey, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radak Nesbitta, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Radilovic, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks for joining us, everyone, and we'll see you here next time for more Starts with a Bang. Starts with a Bang.